feminist friend. Welcome to the first official episode of the Feminist Parenting Podcast. For our first episode, I sat down with my friend Carrie to talk about her experiences as an adoptive parent. Carrie and her husband are white and their daughter is black and that has created um, a very unique situation for them. So Carrie has shared some of the things that she's learned about adoption and about parenting a black child. I hope that you enjoy our discussion. Before we switch over, my son Micah wants to say hi. Hello. He is a budding YouTuber, so be sure to check him out at Crazy Koopa Kids if you like Nintendo. All right, here's my discussion with Carrie. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey there, friends. I am here with my friend Carrie. Now, Carrie and I, um, our kids go to school together. So that's how we met in person. But then a couple of days later, we figured out that we actually already kind of knew each other. <laughs> Carrie and I were in a Facebook group together for a podcast about reality TV because we're both fans. Judgment-free zone here. <laughs> then that Facebook group imploded, as they tend to do, and another one spawned, and then I think also imploded, and then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're on the third iteration of that Facebook group, and um, after Carrie and I connected on Facebook, after we met at a PTA meeting, we realized, oh, hey, <laughs> we're both in this group together, and then I automatically had to be like, oh my gosh, did I say anything dumb? Did I say anything stupid? Because I really like this person, and I want her to be my friend. <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> so that's the story of how we met, and now Carrie is on the podcast. Thank you so much, Carrie. I am so excited. I am such a podcast junkie, so this is, but this is my first time actually being on one, except that I was a caller on our podcast that we both listened to, so oh. that was our, <laughs> I had called a couple times, so they featured me on a voice note, so oh. this is my second, second or third podcast. Oh, this is time. exciting then. You're, you're moving up in the world. Yeah. <laughs> So the reason I asked Carrie to come on, and um, well, there's two reasons. Because this is our first episode, and Carrie is a friend, I knew she wouldn't judge me too harshly if I totally screwed things up. And secondly, um, Carrie has a really unique kind of parenting journey and parenting experience. Uh, Carrie and her husband are white, but their daughter that they adopted is black. And um, so Carrie kind of has an interesting perspective as a white parent of a black child. Um, and in the Facebook group that we're in together, she said some really smart and thought-provoking things about adoption and parenting and that journey um, and the way parents can do that in the most respectful and honoring way for their child. And I just knew that I wanted to talk to her on the podcast about all of it. So we are going to jump in. Um, so Carrie, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, I can. Um, my husband and I um, have been married for, um, we've been married for about 12 years. And at the three-year mark, like most, um, we decided to start trying for a baby. And we were unable to conceive went through all the testing and we were at that fork of, uh, we could try additional um, I IVF or we could try to adopt and my father's actually adopted. So it's never been far from my heart and it was just something I just wanted to pursue. I kind of thought like, I feel like every week, every month, I was just kind of hit with that same 
rejection that came from not being able to get pregnant. And I just knew in my heart that adoption was the next step. So, um, so yeah, so we started on our journey. I just really quickly, I'd like to give a plug for my employer was an adoption friendly um, workplace. So I was able to explore a lot of adoption options. And um, within that, um, we found an agency local and um, uh, went through all of the steps. Um, it took about seven months to kind of get our house in order, uh, which included TV tests and home studies and credit checks and all of those things. Um, counseling, um, we met with a social worker. And then after that, after we were finally at that point where the um, agency said we were deemed okay to adopt. Uh, 32 days later, our daughter was born. <laughs> and we got a call and it was at the start of school. My husband is a school teacher and um, he was, I think he was on his first week back and we got a call that our, our daughter was born and we rushed to the hospital with the three things we had time to get, which were the diaper bag, the going home outfit and then car seat <laughs> and then that was it. And I feel like that has been the journey ever since we've just been on a constant journey of learning how to parent flying by the seat of our pants. And then, um, our daughter is black. So that has been, um, a journey that we consciously, um, decided to invest in early on. So for all the stuff that's happening now, it's all kind of stuff that we've had seven years to kind of answer to and respond and then also prepare for. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of our journey to parenthood. So let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so you and your husband are white and your daughter is black. When you guys decided to pursue adoption, was adopting a child that wasn't white something you were intentional about from the beginning? Is it something that came up along the way or how did you guys kind of make that decision? When we met with the social worker from our agency, they asked us some specific race related questions. Um, they asked us what our relationship had been with race previously. Um, we had to answer uh, questions I'd say it pro Black Lives Matter wasn't yet a thing, but that was kind of what we were asked. Um, we were asked about, uh, my husband was asked about, um, had he ever taught black children, which he definitely had in the inner city school district that he was in. Um, I talked a lot about the um, school that I grew up in, which was fully integrated. Um, and um, so yeah, so that was kind of along the lines of where it started. And then we had actually signed a thing again, again, I'm going to plug the adoption friendly workplace all day long, but I actually said that we would be okay considering um, a stork drop or a fall in your lap adoption, which was uh, adoption on short notice, which is right. what ours ended up being. Wow. So <laughs> um, I had, I never will forget it. I had an appointment for a 90 minute massage, which was like the last self care double income, no kids thing I did. And then that next day, um, I called and said, Oh, I'll be off for 90 minutes. Just knowing that there was no reason we'd get that call. And then the very next day they called and they were like, come to the hospital, your baby's being born. So yeah. So you said that it was a last minute kind of fall in your lap adoption. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you guys know that you would be um, adopting a baby that was black? Um, they had called us and asked us if we were interested and they 
they, and this happens a lot in adoption, sometimes they will say, we're not sure of sure. the parent background, but they did know. And so we were, we said we were interested and we would absolutely consider it if, if we were picked. And um, so then, then she was born and we were on oh, our wow. way. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So how long was that time frame between getting that call and then? It was boom. four hours. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So not a whole lot of time to process, no. but it sounds like you guys had been sort of thinking about this yeah. along the way had and you knew yeah. it was, you were open to mm -hmm. it. So that's fantastic. Yeah. How did family and friends, maybe coworkers, acquaintances, how did they react to the news that, okay, Carrie is a mom now. Oh, and, and by the way, Carrie's baby is not white. I was very cautious going in about who I shared our adoption journey with. I think it was just that whole thing that we keep hearing in social media where people will ask, like, you're this far along in your uh, marriage, so when are you going to start having kids? I was so tired of that question that when we were ready to adopt, I kept our circle incredibly small, probably less than 10 people. And um, so when she was born, um, we didn't um, tell anybody until the rights were signed away. And so I don't think I gave a lot of thought to what other people uh, were going to think. I knew that, I knew in my heart that my own mental health of being a parent and um, not having everybody's opinion um, invested was going to be what I needed to be a mom. And I think that that has served me so well um, moving forward. We can get into more of that as we go, but, um, that's, but that's yeah. something that I wish I had figured out earlier with my own kids that other people's opinions, I just, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't need them if I didn't ask for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I even think like, um, you know, now they'll say, don't tell people what the name is because people are going to say, oh, this is the name and this, this, that, and the other. And um, obviously we didn't because we kept our community small, but I can even see how that can start, you know, at, before the baby's even born, everybody's going to wage their own opinions on things. So I was glad we didn't have to do that. So I would imagine now, Carrie, if people meet you, again, coworkers, um, or people mm -hmm. meet you independent of your child, <laughs> Um, they probably assume that because you are white and your husband is white, that your child is white. Um, and I highly doubt you're walking into conversations saying, Hey, let me tell you about my black mm -hmm. daughter. So, so how do people react when they find out? Are most people open? Are they surprised or? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say that, um, I, so my previous job, I had worked sure. at everybody knew because they kind of followed the saga. Um, but my newest job, I'd say that the people that were most surprised, but also like, Oh, that's so great. Were the black coworkers that I had. I remember, um, I was doing a work trip and we were next to this really nice, um, hair store. And when I was learning her hair texture, I was all about every product. Somebody would tell me about, it, I would go and buy it. And um, I wanted to stop at this hair store. And I know my coworker was like, why is she so obsessed with this co this hair store? And I, I said, I'm really sorry. My daughter is 
I think she was three at the time. And I said, I'm learning how to do black hair. And I love going in and seeing the products and seeing everything. And I remember <laughs> this like, oh, okay, that makes so much sense. Um, but I'd say that it's, it is harder with kind of white people that maybe don't know their audience. Um, I recently had a conversation with a new coworker and he was saying, well, I'm trying to be politically correct. And it was a company that was trying to increase their diversity numbers. And I've always been pretty passionate about diversity. I had worked um, in kind of a predominantly white male recruitment field. And so I was always about like, let's increase these numbers, let's get a different perspective. And then I'd kind of forgotten about that when I moved to this new job. And he kept kind of saying, I'm trying to be politically correct about what we're recruiting for. And I was just like, hmm, I wonder why you're saying that. And so he kept, I, I think this thing kind of as a feminist woman where you don't want to call out a man so that he thinks negatively that you're emotional or whatever. So I kind of just kept asking him questions just to kind of get to where he was. And then I kind of just said, I was like, no, I, I do understand what you're talking about. And I was like, and actually my daughter is black. She's seven. So I, I think that sometimes people just take that for granted and they can be, they can say dumb things and that it won't matter who they say it to. And it's just like, everybody should be smart about what they say and not offensive. Exactly. Yeah. There's kind of like this assumption that, oh, you're white, so I can mm-hmm. say this to you. I, I mean, I've had people make comments to me and, you know, and I'm not the parent of a black child, but I've, I've had people make comments to me. Um, a former coworker of my husband once said something that was just so off base, but she said mm-hmm. it so casually as if, because I was also a white woman, I would agree with her. And, you know, it's just shocking sometimes how casually racist people mm-hmm. can be when they feel like they're in a comfortable space yeah, to do exactly. so. And I feel like growing up, the school district that I was raised in was fully integrated. So everybody was bused at some point out of their neighborhood to another one. So like if you were in the wealthy one, you'd be, you'd be bused to the urban area. So everybody was taken out of their comfort zone at some point. And then in addition to that, it was a predominantly, um, like our principal was Jewish. And so I went to school with a lot of Jewish people. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. And so there were so many things that I took for granted because that was the life I grew up in. And I was just like, I did not know the significance of the Confederate flag until I got to college. And so there was, I, I was talking to another friend that was from my hometown and we both thought it had something to do with maybe the car from Dukes of Hazard, and oh my God. But um, there were parts where I couldn't believe how comfortable people were with being racist. Um, and that's been, a, that's been a learning for me since having a daughter. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned earlier that our kids go to school together and that's kind of how we met. Um, but you don't actually live in our school district. You're close by. So I wanted to talk about how you ended up at our school um, and some of the ways that you've been intentional about building community for your daughter and, um, you know, the experiences that you're exposing her to and kind of your thought process in, in moving through those things. Okay. So I would think that 
one of the main things that I've always done working in human resources is I always amplify the voices around me because I feel like that's just who I am. I love a different perspective. It probably was that school district I was raised in, but um, I had, we were raising her and everybody was talking about like, we should send her to a really good school so that she would have the best option. And we just picked it. We work from where we live now. Um, so we just picked a school district that we thought was okay. And as we went through, I went on a tour of the school and as I was like, in my profession, I was listening to a lot of uh, black voices. And one of the things is that kept resonating with me is, especially as a female, like you can't be what you can't see. And um, that was always something that was really important to me. So her preschool had had a black teacher. It had had a black principal. And coming from a family of educators, I wanted her to know that that was something she could do. Um, so I went on a tour of the school and from the moment that I got there, it, it was very white. Um, and then I knew as a working parent that we'd have her in an after school program because their school ends so early. And uh, so I noticed that there were only like three black children in the after school program. And when you, when you look at schools and how the discipline works and how, um, you know, how the after school programs work and those kinds of things, all of those little nuances kind of add up. And then you're like, if I send her to the school, is she going to be on the side that ends up being in the discipline or is she going to be on the side where she's the token? Like, I don't want that either. So I just kept looking and there was a school that I passed, work from home. I would pass the school on my way to Target um, to shop <laughs> um, after I was done with my work. And I noticed right away how diverse the school was and followed a couple of people on social media that sent their kids there. And they really did a great job of not pushing the diversity. It wasn't like, we've got three black children, let's put them in front of the school for our social media. They didn't have to try. And that's, that is what we wanted for our daughter. And um, my husband had taught at an urban school district and he was so impressed with the family aspect of the district. Um, so I knew her growing up in a white home, that would kind of be her comfort spot. So where would she get her mentors and where would she get her ability to code switch? She wouldn't get it from us. Um, so that was important for us to have, for her to have a black identity um, outside of us. So um, we, at the last minute, changed our mind and went to that school, befriended the principal and asked if she could push our stuff to the front. Um, so that we could get in for the next, for kindergarten. And she's been there. So you know that I, I love our school for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of my favorite things is, so there would pe be people that would look at our school that I believe is something like 85% minority. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 80 or 85% of kids on free and reduced lunch. And mm -hmm. they would see that as a liability. Um, but I feel like our school really leans into it and sees it as a strength, you know, that yeah. we are so diverse that we have, you know, not just black students, but immigrant families, you know, we have several refugee families, mm -hmm. um, that, that our diversity is really our strength. Um, and that's, uh, yeah. that's when I, the school really had my heart when I walked in and saw mm -hmm. how the teachers and the administrators just really embraced the school identity. 
they're not trying to make mm-hmm. it look like something it's not. They're trying not trying to fit everybody into one box. It's really yeah. just embracing the identity that we have and accommodating people and you know, just, just making sure that everybody feels connected. And, um, I just love it. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, just to, just to plug as well. I remember being blown away that our PGA is smaller, but it's done in three languages. Like what? I the first meeting, I was blown away that we had translators for two. And I mean, that's, that is a, that is a privilege that I don't think a lot of School districts have anymore because you know you you have the one program that's the international school and you'll get that but mm-hmm. um but yeah I just thought that that was I remember that first meeting and just thinking I'll be here forever because because I work from home and where am I gonna get to see this anywhere right. else like having so many options and right. diverse thought absolutely um and I love I love how many of our teachers send their kids to that school yeah. even though they don't live in the district like yeah <laughs> it shows me that they value it too um Definitely. you know Micah's Micah's third grade teacher lives lives a hike from the school like it's it's a journey um and they could send their daughter to the school where they live but they've chosen to send her to our school for you know very intentional reasons and I just Those are the kinds of people that I want teaching my kid. So in addition to school, I know there are some other things that your daughter is involved in. Um, So how did you kind of scout out things like she does tumbling and things like that? Um, Tell us a little bit about that program and how you made that decision. Um, She had, we were always super into diverse activities. So we joined the Y that's down the street and she had aged out of the gymnastics program there. And we were at a, you know, I want to say Horcrux. We were at an impasse. We needed to find something that was more in line with her skill set. So again, going back to her school, they have an after school program and they let them kind of have free play. And she was, um, this is such like a, a funny feminist moment, but she was doing tumbling with a, a little boy and she was like, I'm better at gymnastics than you. And he's like, I'm better than you. And um, so they were, we were walking out together and I asked the mom where she sent um, her son for tumbling. And so she mentioned it and I had no idea. It ended up being an all black, uh, gym. And, um, so that's been, that has been such an adventure and again, such a privilege where, um, we've gotten to be in some black spaces. I have been the only white person in the room in meetings and parent meetings. And she's really, she's been in this group and she has, um, black coaches. She has, black sisters, you know, it really is very much a family and it's, um, ages six through 17. So she gets all of these, um, opportunities to learn from these girls. And she was in a, um, historically black university homecoming parade. Um, we were, we helped out in the parade. Um, you know, it's just funny where people are like, oh my gosh, you know, as a white parent, I'd feel so out of place at the end of the day all of the parents were hot and sweaty, picking up palms and carrying speakers and everything. It did not matter that I was white and the other parents were black. I was seeing my daughter kick ass with her team and they were cheering and smiling. And 
waving at the crowd, I would never have wanted to miss that moment for anything. I would right. never have let my, the fact I was white, um, stand in the moment of her having her moment, which right. would have broken my heart had we not done right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's so important to, to put aside our comfort level mm -hmm. you know, for the good of our kids, because I'm sure she didn't give it a second thought, Yeah, you know, but, um, but as, as white people, we can feel very self-conscious about being the only white person in a space. Um, even though for minority folks, that's mm -hmm. their life. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so I think it's it's a very good thing for us to experience. Um, and in my experience, um, when you are respectful of the fact that you are in a space that wasn't created for you, mm -hmm. people will welcome you yeah, with open arms. Definitely. Um, you know, I've had, as I told you earlier, um, offline, we, um, we worshiped at a predominantly black church for a long time. Um, I ran with a black women's running group for a while. Um, and in both of those instances, it, it was an adjustment and there were times that I felt uncomfortable initially. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. at, at the end of a five mile run, you're all sweaty and it really doesn't matter. And, exactly. um, yeah, it's, it's just sometimes being willing to put yourself in that mm -hmm. situation. I will always say that like, you need to sit in that discomfort yes. and feel yes. how that feels. And I think sometimes white people, will want it to be about them and want it to be like, Hey guys, I'm white. Guess what? They know, they know you're white. And, right. um, there's no need, there's no need to single yourself out. But I think it's also important to realize too, when you're entering into those, uh, those predominantly black spaces that people may not receive you well. And that's okay because there's not a lot of reason to trust us. There's not a lot of reason to trust white women right now if you are a black person living in America. Um, and you have to, we have to be okay with that. We have to understand it and it's not going to feel good. But we can't get our feelings hurt. We have to understand that it's, it's not about who you are as a person. It's just about years and a lifetime and generations of, of just mistrust. And um, so there's a little bit of prove yourself that sometimes has to happen, but that's okay. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I would say the overall Karen-ness of all of it. I felt like going in, I thought they don't even have to take her on the team. They do not have to have her here. Um, and I just remember sitting there and just being like, I, I don't deserve the kindness that they bestowed upon me. And from that kindness, um, they, went over not I hair care I I did get but like um age appropriate hair care um they went over like how the trends are with their ages and those kinds of things I was just into like the basics um but there were so many things that I just learned because I sat there in the discomfort didn't say anything and just kind of was open to everything that was um kind of shared with me so I've been it's, it was, it's just a little cheer team, but, um, it's, I've gotten so much from it. Um, I, more than I could probably put into words just in terms of like the camaraderie with the other moms and, uh, just to even have them, we had our big meeting today and even to have them like wave at me across the room when last year, all of, all the little kids were looking at me like, why is this white woman in the corner? 
So now that they want to sit by me, I'm, I'm just, it's such a nice gift of kindness um, that I'm grateful for. Because we're kind of talking about race, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you are talking to your daughter about race. You mentioned that she's seven. Um, so she is old enough to be aware that she mm -hmm. looks different than you. She's having different experiences than you are. Um, you know, she is mm -hmm. experiencing both black spaces and white spaces. Um, you know, so especially considering the current climate, um, how much do you talk to her about these things? How much do you feel comfortable sharing with her? Mm, we were always kind of upfront with her. Um, we've been upfront with her about racists. Um, I would say that um, it is more of an age-appropriate conversation. We were up. We have been upfront with her about houses that we can't really trust in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, for those that, that are aware, things like Confederate flag in their garage or political stickers or, um, just you, you get a sense of, of who is good and who is bad. Um, I would say that the other piece, um, for us has been, I didn't necessarily want her to see, uh, the George Floyd, um, stuff on TV. We actually happen to be watching the elections for school board. And for some reason, it flipped right from the school board to the images of George Floyd. I don't even know what the thing was, but she saw it. And um, she knows enough about racism to know she did say, oh, is that a white cop that has his knee on that black man? And it was almost as though, I mean, it's just crazy when people say, oh, my, my children don't understand race. Well, the seven-year-old did understand, um, did understand that the police, police officer was a bad man. Um, and it wasn't something, I think we had just built up to that. Right. We put enough little seeds in her that it wasn't like we sat her down and said, here's what happened to this one man. Um, for me personally, the wake-up call was uh, Philando Castile um, because his daughter was the same age as my daughter at the time, um, the one that was in the back, and um, his wife was from Indianapolis. His girlfriend, I think it was his girlfriend, fiance, um, and it was just so close to home that um, I couldn't, I, I couldn't let it go. And so I think at that point, that's when we started that was kind of why I felt like switching the school was so important. Um, that was, I think, three, four, I think she was four years old at the time. I just, I can't Ooh. even put words to it. It's, it's just a challenge that those of us with white kids can't, can't fathom. Um, and I, I really appreciate mm -hmm. the fact that you are, as a white parent of a black child that you are not ignoring that because you could, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful uh, that you haven't as hard as I know it has to be yeah, for you definitely. and your husband to do. Um, it's, it's, I know how hard it is to shatter my own children's innocence. Mm -hmm. um, I remember our first conversations about things like stranger danger and, you know, good touch, bad touch and all that stuff. Um, yeah. I knew it had to happen, but there was a part of me that was just so heartbroken 
that I was disrupting their perfect little world. Um, Mm-hmm. And then, you know, multiply that by mm-hmm. infinity for folks that have to let their kids know that mm-hmm. maybe the people that are supposed to be protecting them are not good people. Like, just heartbreaking. I'd say, too, like, one of the things that I kind I dealt with like a lot of loss shortly after um, my, when my daughter was three, I lost my mom to cancer and then my brother um a year after that unexpectedly and I kind of started to feel like we aren't guaranteed a perfect life and if I don't expose her to these things now what is that going to feel like what is that going to you know let's just say we hadn't even told her she was adopted what is that going to feel like someday when the earth falls out from underneath her mm-hmm. I cannot imagine that life for her um to where she didn't know to that these things could happen. Like I said, I'm making it age appropriate as much as I can, but I I just remember thinking if Philando's daughter can try to hold his hand and deal with that and she's the exact same age, she can hear all of those things that may happen um, as she gets older. I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk about um, adoption. Um, So actually, I'm just going to keep it open. I would love to hear your thoughts on adoption and um, respecting the rights of the child and their story. And um, yeah, I'm just going to kind of let you talk. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, Let's see. In terms of my thoughts on adoption, um, and this was just kind of something I felt as though when we were going through the process. Everybody will say, you know, oh, you guys will be the best parents. I remember going to our first meeting and thinking about what I was going to wear, thinking about what was I going to look like as a parent, like how was I going to impress the agency, blah, blah, blah. I will never forget, I think I wore dark jeans, to be serious, a long sleeve shirt and like a flowered scarf or something. I felt like that was whimsical. No joke, I got there and there were three other moms, potential moms, with the exact same you know, racket in terms of what they were wearing. And I remember thinking they're, they're just as, you know, going to be as good a parents as we are. And I never went into adoption feeling like we were entitled to someone else's child. Um, it is, it is a loss for everybody. It is a loss for the birth mom. It is a loss for my child. Um, it is a loss for me. So it's never been this romantic, oh my gosh, she's so lucky. You know, she's she's got won the pot of gold as parents are concerned. I think we all have challenges and we all have things to work on. But my main soapbox for adoption is two-pronged. One, it's the white savior, which is the one that, you know, usually will assume that they will be the best possible parent for this child. Sometimes they'll go on the mission trip and then adopt a child over there and you're just ripping them out of their situation. Sometimes just to avoid a potential birth mom interaction. Mm -hmm. And then there is the other part where they, they tell the saga of the child and this is what happened. The mom was on drugs, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what happens when the, and this breaks my heart, when, if the adoption falls through, 
which is more common than people realize. Right. Um, when the adoption falls through, everybody starts bad mouthing this birth mom who has gotten the resources to get her child back. If you go into adoption the right way, this is what you should be encouraging. You should be encouraging a relationship with the birth mom. I feel like the story of the child is sacred. I'm sure a lot of us would not want our stories of how we came to be out in the open. Um, but especially in adoption where somebody has decided that they cannot parent that is between them and the child. Um, I would never want that stuff circulating if I was the adopted child. I wouldn't want people to know that. Right. And that's why um, how this whole kind of topic came to be through our social media discussion was, was um, kind of talking about YouTubers who announce that they are going to adopt and document every segment of their journey, um, making money off of this, this journey. Um, and it's the, a line is crossed. I think, like you said, when we get into those really deep personal things that just aren't, aren't their story to tell. Um, you know, and even, even as we're sitting here today, you're really telling me your story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, your daughter's story is her story. And if I'm still podcasting in 20 years and she wants to come and tell her story, then she is welcome. I would love it. Um, but, you know, you have always been very respectful of the fact that that's her story to tell in her, in her time if she wants to or if she doesn't want to. Um, and I just love it. I think, I think what you said in, in our Facebook discussion was that we're not owed their story. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't, people certainly don't come up to me and ask me the details of how my children came to be. Um, and it's not any different for you just because you adopted your daughter and she looks differently than you. Yeah. And I would say too, I don't know if you're ever familiar with like an addict or mental health or any of those things, like just even to put that in there, addict, you know, they have AA meetings and Al-Anon meetings and all of that stuff. And that's all anonymous. So if a birth parent would have any of that story, oh my gosh, if the adoption, if the adoptive parents would share all of that, that is breaking like a hundred moral and ethical codes that I don't necessarily think unless you go through a, you know, legitimate agency, are you actually told like, do not share those things. And sometimes some people that use the social media platforms, they're able to bypass a lot of that because they'll get their funding from the people that are interested in the story for ours we had to be, they had to validate that we were good parents and then we paid the money. So I, yeah, no, <laughs> I will never be okay with that. And I mean, there's, I don't feel like there's enough of that voice out there that says, this is none of your business. <laughs> Stop sharing it with everybody. You know, I don't, I don't want to minimize how difficult it must be to for those families that are unable to conceive and, and 
mm-hmm. you know, are faced with a decision, you know, how do we move forward? That's not ever something that I have, have dealt with. Um, and I, I can understand both the, the heartbreaking um, decision that has to be made there when, when you, like you said, you kind of have to grieve that loss um, and then figure mm-hmm. out how to move forward. Um, and I can, also, I can also understand the desire to, to want to share when you're excited about this, this new life that you didn't know if it would be coming into your world, and now it is. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's so important, and I don't know that I had ever really considered it until you brought it up, um, just really how mm-hmm. important it is to respect that child, to respect that child's birth family, um, and just to hold that story close. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. on display for everyone to see. And it really should be the decision of, of the child when they're ready, if they're ever ready to share more about that story. And I'd say too, with that, that with the potential adoption parents, I make no, I'm not gl- glossing over the inability to conceive or anything either. I feel like that that's the story that they were given in their life and the birth family was given their own story one story doesn't carry more weight than the other. And I feel like when you kind of go out and you're like, oh, I had this harrowing tale about how we couldn't conceive. That's great. What about this harrowing tale about, you know, what happened with the birth family? Your story isn't more important. And I think it's just that whole being open and being, being respectful of everybody's journey, which is by the time we all have kids is so completely different. Everybody's been on their own journey in life. And I just don't think that anybody's journey to get to 30, 35 uh, is more important than the next person. Right. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's important for all of us to consider. Um, You know, my oldest is 11 now and he would really, I rather not, rather not that I take his picture and put it on social media and he's not so ready to like, pose in front of things so I can use his picture for a blog post. He's just not interested. And he is embarrassed if I talk about him a lot on social media. And um, as much as I may want to, I have to respect that. Um, and, and even with my, with my younger ones, um, I have to be respectful of the fact that, you know, Ben may not have an opinion at three years old about what I post on social media, but he may one day. Um, so it's, it's something for all of us to consider, but it's, it's all the more complex when you have um, a birth family involved in circumstances that were probably less than ideal that led to an adoption happening. I think it is definitely a generational shift where we were kind of, most of us started social media prior to kids. So like for us, this is our journey, but also to add the kids in there, we aren't really giving children a lot of thought about what we include, you know, potty training stories and um, my kid is an asshole, those kinds of things that are out there. We're not, and we didn't have that. I maybe have three pictures of my childhood best friend that I spent years with. um, And I probably took three pictures of my daughter today before, you know, noon. (laughs) So, yeah. Mm -hmm. We have had a great chat. I wanted to um, just wrap up with what is one thing that you wish parents of white kids knew about raising a black child? And if it's more than one thing, you can share more than one thing. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that we definitely need you in our lives. I feel like 
there is a, a point where you kind of think, oh, okay, well, she's on this journey now. I, I can never understand what that's like. There, there is room for you at the table. It doesn't have to be black parents and white parents. It doesn't have to be black kids versus white. Please come and be a part of this. I think, again, that's something our school does an amazing job at. Um, when Black Lives Matter kind of hit the fever pitch it has recently, so many of those families reached out to us and they asked how my daughter was doing. And that was so kind because it's good to know that they right. we still have them in our corner. Um, I would say in terms of other things, yeah, there's so much to be said for sitting in the discomfort. I feel like with all the stuff on social media, if I was a white parent of a white child, there'd be this inherent plight within me to whisk my child up and pick them up and never have them deal with this. But this is everywhere. This will be, um, you know, in sports, this will be in college, this will be in the workplace. Um, there's so many places where we have to unpack it and deal with these real situations. And I feel like especially for me as a parent, it's, it's not a one issue. It's not a A versus B issue. It is, you know, redlining communities. It is mental health. It is education, public school versus private versus home. Um, there's so many different pieces to it. And it's, but just, I'd say, and I'm going on, see, I'm in that mindset of there's so many pieces. Just listen to what we have to say. It is a different perspective, but at the same time, we, we had to learn it. If we're doing a good job parenting a black child, we understand what you're going through because we had to go through it too. And I think that for my journey, I had it broken up over years and now bless all of the parents who are like, I'm trying to get on board. I'm trying to read the books and I'm trying to do this. There is a part where I have said, you know, make sure that you include things that are a little bit lighter. Not everything has to be so heavy. Include like funny TV, like a family reunion or a different world, which is on Amazon Prime right now. Um, put those things in just because there's so many black voices and they aren't all activists and they aren't all doctors, but by black um from black businesses and just get other perspectives other than the ones that are available to you front and center, because we all have social media in front of us and we all have so many ways to get things. And it's just about giving other people the opportunities that, that we were just given without even really asking for. I think that my oldest has learned as much about racism and Black Lives Matter from walking, watching Blackish as anything. Um, and uh, when he started watching it, I was like, okay, there's some stuff that's a little edgy here, some sex talk, some other stuff, but um, it was worth it. First of all, I think that made it more enticing to him that he knew it was like a little bit taboo. Mm -hmm. um, but just for him to watch this show and get attached yeah. to the characters and then see them experience racism in their stories. It was just such a, a powerful thing. Um, but it's also funny. So he isn't overwhelmed with this. I'm learning a big, important lesson right now. It was, it was really, um, really just more of an experience he could internalize without even thinking about it. So watch black TV shows. <laughs> yeah. 
And I will, <laughs> black TV shows are great. And I even say too, you know, where people have said the history books have come into play a lot lately. Like we didn't realize that we were hearing about George Washington's wooden teeth and that they were made of slaves. Like I told somebody lately, I referred somebody to the drunk history episode of Claudette Col Colvin. Who knew about that? I mean, like just things where you're just about your day and you're like, I didn't even know that. And so there, and I was like, yeah, it's comedians and they've been drinking, but, but at the end of the day, you're just finding your mind is just blown by watching something 10 minutes before you go to bed. <laughs> and it's been very educational. I, I wouldn't say I tell the seven year old to watch drunk history, but if everybody's watching the 13th or just mercy, like, Hey, take a breather and just unload with something that might be educational that you didn't know about. That might be a little bit funny too. It's like, okay. And I think it's so important to remember that black existence and minority existence is not just oppression. Yeah. Um, there is so much more than than slavery and the civil rights movement and and police violence. Those are huge things that we need to deal with. Um, but we also need to explore black art and black culture and black music and um, black voices that are speaking on things other than, you know, specific political or racial issues. Um, and sometimes it just means changing the channel. Maybe you turn it over to BET or, or TV One instead of, um, you know, whatever it is you normally watch just to get that new perspective. Exactly. Yeah. If anybody is sleeping on Real Housewives of Potomac, you are missing out because that is the best one. <laughs> I would even say we try to be really intentional about messaging at seven. Um, we usually will get, if she's invited to a white friend's house for a birthday, we try to get the, the black Barbie and the white Barbie so that they understand that they can have black dolls as well. I think that's important to grow up with diverse, diverse dolls even. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for your time and for talking with us about your story. And I just appreciate you opening up and sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am so appreciative. And I hope somewhere down the way that this is helpful to other people. So I'm happy to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Feminist Parenting Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. Feminist Parenting Podcast is a production of Feminist Books for Kids. You can learn more about us at feministbooksforkids.com or by searching for Feminist Books for Kids on your favorite social media channel. Thanks so much.